0: Chapters 25, 26, and 27 of *The Golden Bough*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sheila Morton, Jefferson City, Tennessee. *The Golden Bough* by Sir James Frazer, Chapter 25, Temporary Kings. In some places, the modified form of the old custom of regicide, which appears to have prevailed at Babylon, has been further softened down. The king still abdicates annually for a short time, and his place is filled by a more or less nominal sovereign. But at the close of his short reign, the latter is no longer killed, though sometimes a mock execution still survives, as a memorial of the time when he was actually put to death. To take examples, in the month of Maoc, or february the king of cambodia annually abdicated for three days during this time he performed no act of authority he did not touch the seals he did not even receive the revenues which fell due in his stead there reigned a temporary king called Miak, that is king february the office of temporary king was hereditary in a family distantly connected with the royal house, the sons succeeding the fathers and the younger brothers the elder brothers, just as in the succession to the real sovereignty. On a favorable day fixed by the astrologers, the temporary king was conducted by the Mandarins in triumphal procession. He rode one of the royal elephants, seated in the royal palanquin, and escorted by soldiers who, dressed in appropriate costumes, represented the neighboring peoples of Siam, Anam, laus, and so on. In place of the golden crown he wore a peaked white cap, and his regalia, instead of being of gold encrusted with diamonds, were of rough wood. After paying homage to the real king, from whom he received the sovereignty for three days, together with all the revenues accruing during that time, though this last custom has been omitted for some time, he moved in procession round the palace and through the streets of the capital on the third day after the usual procession the temporary king gave orders that the elephants should trample underfoot the mountain of rice which was a scaffold of bamboo surrounded by sheaves of rice the people gathered up the rice each man taking home a little with him to secure a good harvest some of it was also taken to the king who had it cooked and presented to the monks in siam on the sixth day of the moon in the sixth month the end of April, a temporary king is appointed who for three days enjoys the royal prerogatives, the real king remaining shut up in his palace. This temporary king sends his numerous satellites in all directions to seize and confiscate whatever they can find in the bazaar and open shops. Even the ships and junks which arrive in harbour during the three days are forfeited to him and must be redeemed. He goes to a field in the middle of the city whither they bring a gilded plough drawn by gaily decked oxen. After the plough has been anointed and the oxen rubbed with incense, the mock king traces nine furrows with the plough, followed by the aged dames of the palace scattering the first seed of the season. As soon as the nine furrows are drawn, the crowd of spectators rushes in and scrambles for the seed, which has just been sown, believing that, mixed with the seed rice, it will ensure a plentiful crop. Then the oxen are unyoked, and rice, maize, sesame, sago, bananas, sugarcane, melons, and so on are set before them. Whatever they eat first will, it is thought, be dear in the year following, though some people interpret the omen in the opposite sense. During this time, the temporary king stands leaning against a tree with his right foot resting on his left knee. From standing thus on one foot, he is popularly known as King Hop, but his official title is Faya Folotep, Lord of the Heavenly Hosts. He is a sort of minister of agriculture. All disputes about fields, rice, and so forth are referred to him. There is, moreover, another ceremony in which he personates the king. It takes place in the second month, which falls in the cold season, and lasts three days he is conducted in procession to an open place opposite the temple of the brahmans where there are a number of poles dressed like maypoles upon which the brahmans swing all the while that they swing and dance the lord of the heavenly hosts has to stand on one foot upon a seat which is made of bricks plastered over covered with a white cloth and hung with tapestry he is supported by a wooden frame with a gilt canopy and two brahmans stand one on each side of him The dancing Brahmans carry buffalo horns, with which they draw water from a large copper cauldron, and sprinkle it on the spectators. This is supposed to bring good luck, causing the people to dwell in peace and quiet, health and prosperity. The time during which the Lord of the Heavenly Hosts has to stand on one foot is about three hours. This is thought, to prove the dispositions of the divatas and spirits, unquote if he lets his foot down quote, he is liable to forfeit his property and have his family enslaved by the king as it is believed to be a bad omen portending destruction to the state and instability to the throne But if he stand firm, he is believed to have gained a victory over evil spirits, and he has, moreover, the privilege, ostensibly at least, of seizing any ship which may enter the harbor during these three days, and taking its contents, and also of entering any open shop in the town, and carrying away what he chooses. Such were the duties and privileges of the Siamese King Hop, down to about the middle of the nineteenth century or later. Under the reign of the late enlightened monarch, this quaint personage was to some extent both shorn of the glories and relieved of the burden of his office. He still watches, as of old, the Brahmins rushing through the air in a swing suspended between two tall masts, each some ninety feet high. But he is allowed to sit instead of stand, and although public opinion still expects him to keep his right foot on his left knee during the whole of the ceremony, he would incur no legal penalty were he, to the great chagrin of the people, to put his weary foot to the ground. Other signs, too, tell of the invasion of the East, by the ideas and civilization of the West. The thoroughfares that lead to the scene of the performance are blocked with carriages, lamp-posts and telegraph-posts, to which eager spectators cling like monkeys, rise above the dense crowd. And while a tattered Malian band of the old style, in gaudy garb of vermilion and yellow, bangs and toodles away on drums and trumpets of an antique pattern, procession of barefooted soldiers in brilliant uniforms steps briskly along to the lively strains of a modern military band playing March through Georgia. On the first day of the sixth month, which was regarded as the beginning of the year, the king and people of Samarkand used to put on new clothes and cut their hair and beards. Then they repaired to a forest near the capital where they shot arrows on horseback for seven days. On the last day the target was a gold coin, and he who hid it had the right to be king for one day. In Upper Egypt, on the first day of the solar year by Coptic reckoning, that is, on the tenth day of September, when the Nile has generally reached its highest point, the regular government is suspended for three days, and every town chooses its own ruler. This temporary lord wears a sort of tall fool's cap and a long flaxen beard, and is enveloped in a strange mantle. With a wand of office in his hand and attended by men disguised as scribes, executioners, and so forth, he proceeds to the governor's house. The latter allows himself to be deposed, and the mock king, mounting the throne, holds a tribunal to the decisions of which even the governor and his officials must bow. After three days the mock king is condemned to death. The envelope or shell in which he was encased is committed to the flames, and from its ashes the fella creeps forth the custom perhaps points to an old practice of burning a real king in grim earnest in uganda the brothers of the king used to be burned because it was not lawful to shed the royal blood the mohammedan students of fez in morocco are allowed to appoint a sultan of their own who reigns for a few weeks and is known as sultan tutulba the sultan of the scribes this brief authority is put up for auction and knocked down to the highest bidder It brings some substantial privileges with it, for the holder is freed from taxes thenceforward, and he has the right of asking a favor from the real sultan. That favor is seldom refused. It usually consists in the release of a prisoner moreover the agents of the student sultan levy fines on the shopkeepers and householders against whom they trump up various humorous charges the temporary sultan is surrounded with the pomp of a real court and parades the streets in state with music and shouting while a royal umbrella is held over his head With the so-called fines and free-will offerings, to which the real sultan adds a liberal supply of provisions, the students have enough to furnish forth a magnificent banquet, and altogether they enjoy themselves thoroughly, indulging in all kinds of games and amusements. For the first seven days the mock sultan remains in the college. Then he goes about a mile out of the town and encamps on the bank of the river, attended by the students and not a few of the citizens. On the seventh day of his stay outside the town, he is visited by the real sultan, who grants him his request, and gives him seven more days to reign, so that the reign of the, quote, sultan of the scribes, quote, nominally lasts three weeks. But when six days of the last week have passed, the mock sultan runs back to the town by night. This temporary sultanship always falls in spring, about the beginning of April. Its origin is said to have been as follows. When Moulai Rashid II was fighting for the throne in 1664 or 1665, a certain Jew usurped the royal authority at Taza. But the rebellion was soon suppressed through the loyalty and devotion of the students. To effect their purpose, they resorted to an ingenious stratagem. Forty of them caused themselves to be packed in chests which were sent as a present to the usurper in the dead of night while the unsuspecting jew was slumbering peacefully among the packing cases the lids were stealthily raised the brave forty crept forth slew the usurper and took possession of the city in the name of the real sultan who to mark his gratitude for the help thus rendered him in time of need conferred on the students the right of annually appointing a sultan of their own the narrative has all the air of a fiction devised to explain an old custom of which the real meaning and origin had been forgotten A custom of annually appointing a mock king for a single day was observed at Lostwithiel in Cornwall, down to the sixteenth century. On Little Easter Sunday, the freeholders of the town and manor assembled together, either in person or by their deputies, and one among them, as it fell to his lot by turn, gaily attired and gallantly mounted, with a crown on his head, a sceptre in his hand, and a sword borne before him, rode through the principal street to the church, dutifully attended by all the rest on horseback. The clergyman, in his best robes, received him at the churchyard stile and conducted him to hear divine service. On leaving the church, he repaired, with the same pomp, to a house provided for his reception. Here a feast awaited him and his suite, and being set at the head of the table, he was served on bended knees, with all the rites due to the estates of a prince. The ceremony ended with a dinner, and every man returned home. Sometimes the temporary king occupies the throne, not annually, but once for all at the beginning of each reign. Thus in the kingdom of Jambi, in Sumatra, it is the custom that at the beginning of a new reign a man of the people should occupy the throne and exercise the royal prerogatives for a single day. The origin of the custom is explained by a tradition that there were once five royal brothers, the four elder of whom all declined the throne on the ground of various bodily defects, leaving it to their youngest brother but the eldest occupied the throne for one day and reserved for his descendants a similar privilege at the beginning of every reign. Thus the office of temporary king is hereditary in a family akin to the royal house. In Bilaspur it seems to be the custom, after the death of a rajah, for a brahmin to eat rice out of the dead rajah's hand, and then to occupy the throne for a year. At the end of the year the brahmin receives presents and is dismissed from the territory, being forbidden apparently to return. Quote, the idea seems to be that the spirit of the Rajah enters into the brahman who eats the kir, rice and milk, out of his hand when he is dead, as the brahman is apparently carefully watched during the whole year and not allowed to go away. The same or a similar custom is believed to obtain among the hill states of Kangra. The custom of banishing the brahman who represents the king, may be a substitute for putting him to death. At the installation of a prince of Corinthia, a peasant, in whose family the office was hereditary, ascended a marble stone, which stood surrounded by meadows in a spacious valley. On his right stood a black mother cow, on his left a lean, ugly mare. A rustic crowd gathered about him. Then the future prince, dressed as a peasant and carrying a shepherd's staff, drew near, attended by courtiers and magistrates. On perceiving him, the peasant called out, "'Who is this whom I see coming so proudly along?' The people answered, the prince of the land. The peasant was then prevailed on to surrender the marble seat to the prince on condition of receiving sixty pence, the cow and mare, and exemption from taxes. But before yielding his place, he gave the prince a light blow on the cheek. Some points about these temporary kings deserve to be specially noticed before we pass to the next branch of the evidence in the first place the cambodian and siamese examples show clearly that it is especially the divine or magical functions of the king which are transferred to his temporary substitute this appears from the belief that by keeping up his foot the temporary king of siam gained a victory over the evil spirits whereas by letting it down he imperiled the existence of the state again the cambodian ceremony of trampling down the mountain of rice and the siamese ceremony of opening the ploughing and sowing are charms to produce a plentiful harvest as appears from the belief that those who carry home some of the trampled rice or of the seed sown will thereby secure a good crop Moreover, when the Siamese representative of the king is guiding the plough, the people watch him anxiously, not to see whether he drives a straight furrow, but to mark the exact point on his leg, to which the skirt of his silken robe reaches, for on that is supposed to hang the state of the weather and the crops during the ensuing season. If the lord of the heavenly hosts hitches up his garment above his knee, the weather will be wet and heavy rains will spoil the harvest. If he lets it trail to his ankle, a drought will be the consequence." But fine weather and heavy crops will follow if the hem of his robe hangs exactly halfway down the calf of his leg. So closely is the course of nature, and with it the weal or woe of the people, dependent on the minutest act or gesture of the king's representative. But the task of making the crops grow, thus deputed to the temporary kings, is one of the magical functions regularly supposed to be discharged by kings in primitive society the rule that the mock king must stand on one foot upon a raised seat in the rice-field was perhaps originally meant as a charm to make the crop grow high at least this was the object of a similar ceremony observed by the old prussians the tallest girl standing on one foot upon a seat with her lap full of cakes a cup of brandy in her right hand and a piece of elm bark or linden bark in her left prayed to the god Wisganthos that the flax might grow as high as she was standing then, after draining the cup, she had it refilled, and poured the brandy on the ground as an offering to wise Ganthos, and threw down the cakes for his attendant sprites. If she remained steady on one foot throughout the ceremony, it was an omen that the flax crop would be good, but if she let her foot down, it was feared that the crop might fail. The same significance, perhaps, attaches to the swinging of the Brahmins, which the Lord of the Heavenly Hosts had formerly to witness standing on one foot." on the principles of homeopathic or imitative magic it might be thought that the higher the priests swing the higher will grow the rice for the ceremony is described as a harvest festival and swinging is practised by the lets of russia with the avowed intention of influencing the growth of the crops in the spring and early summer between easter and st john's day the summer solstice every lettish peasant is said to devote his leisure hours to swinging diligently for the higher he rises in the air the higher will his flax grow that season In the foregoing cases, the temporary king is appointed annually in accordance with a regular custom. But in other cases, the appointment is made only to meet a special emergency, such as to relieve the real king from some actual or threatened evil by diverting it to a substitute who takes his place on the throne for a short time. The history of Persia furnishes instances of such occasional substitutes for the shah. Thus Shah Abbas, the Great, being warned by his astrologers in the year 1591 that a serious danger impended over him, attempted to avert the omen by abdicating the throne and appointing a certain unbeliever named Yusufi, probably a Christian, to reign in his stead. The substitute was accordingly crowned, and for three days, if we may trust the Persian historians, he enjoyed not only the name and the state, but the power of the king. At the end of his brief reign he was put to death the decree of the stars was fulfilled by this sacrifice, and Abbas, who reascended his throne in a most propitious hour, was promised by his astrologers a long and glorious reign. End of chapter 25 The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser, chapter 26 Sacrifice of the King's Son A point to notice about the temporary kings described in the foregoing chapter is that in two places, Cambodia and Jambi, they come of a stock which is believed to be akin to the royal family. If the view here taken of the origin of these temporary kingships is correct, we can easily understand why the king's substitute should sometimes be of the same race as the king. When the king first succeeded in getting the life of another accepted as a sacrifice instead of his own, he would have to show that the death of that other would serve the purpose quite as well as his own would have done. Now, it was as god or demigod that the king had to die. Therefore, the substitute who died for him had to be invested, at least for the occasion, with the divine attributes of the king. This, as we have just seen, was certainly the case with the temporary kings of Siam and Cambodia they were invested with the supernatural functions, which, in an earlier stage of society, were the special attributes of the king. But no one could so well represent the king in his divine character as his son, who might be supposed to share the divine efflatus of his father. No one, therefore, could so appropriately die for the king, and through him for the whole people, as the king's son. We have seen that, according to tradition, Aun or on king of Sweden, sacrificed nine of his sons to Odin at Uppsala, in order that his own life might be spared. After he had sacrificed his second son, he received from the god an answer that he should live so long as he gave him one of his sons every ninth year. When he had sacrificed his seventh son, he still lived, but was so feeble that he could not walk, but had to be carried in a chair. Then he offered up his eighth son, and lived nine years more lying in his bed after that he sacrificed his ninth son and lived another nine years but so that he drank out of a horn like a weaned child he now wished to sacrifice his only remaining son to odin but the swedes would not allow him so he died and was buried in a mound at Uppsala. in ancient greece there seems to have been at least one kingly house of great antiquity of which the eldest sons were always liable to be sacrificed in room of their royal sires When Xerxes was marching through Thessaly, at the head of his mighty host to attack the Spartans at Thermopylae, he came to the town of Alus. Here he was shown the sanctuary of Lephistian, Zeus, about which his guides told him a strange tale. It ran somewhat as follows. Once upon a time the king of the country, by name Athamas, carried a wife, Nepheli, and had by her a son called Phrixus, and a daughter named Hela. Afterward he took himself a second wife, called Eno, by whom he had two sons, Lyarchus and Melacirtus. But his second wife was jealous of her stepchildren, Phrixus and Hella, and plotted their death. She went about very cunningly to compass her bad end. First of all, she persuaded the women of the country to roast the seed corn secretly before it was committed to the ground. So next year no crops came up, and the people died of famine then the king sent messengers to the oracle at delphi to inquire the cause of the dearth but the wicked stepmother bribed the messenger to give out as the answer of the god that the dearth would never cease till the children of athamas by his first wife had been sacrificed to zeus when athamas heard that he sent for the children who were with the sheep but a ram with a fleece of gold opened his lips and speaking with the voice of a man warned the children of their danger so they mounted the ram and fled with him over land and sea as they flew over the sea the girl slipped from the animal's back and falling into water was drowned but her brother phrixus was brought safe to the land of colchis where reigned a child of the sun phrixus married the king's daughter and she bore him a son cyticerus and there he sacrificed the ram with the golden fleece to zeus the god of flight but some will have it that he sacrificed the animal to lephistian zeus The golden fleece itself he gave to his wife's father, who knelt it to an oak tree, guarded by a sleepless dragon in a sacred grove of Ares. Meanwhile, at home, an oracle had commanded that King Athamas himself should be sacrificed as an expiatory offering for the whole country. So the people decked him with garlands like a victim, and led him to the altar, where they were just about to sacrifice him, when he was rescued either by his grandson Cetissorus, who arrived in the nick of time from Colchis, or by Hercules, who brought tidings that the king's son Phrixus was yet alive thus athamas was saved but afterward he went mad and mistaking his son iliarchus for a wild beast shot him dead next he attempted the life of his remaining son melasertes but the child was rescued by his mother eno who ran and threw herself and him from a high rock into the sea mother and son were changed into marine divinities and the son received special homage in the isle of tenedos where babes were sacrificed to him thus bereft of wife and children the unhappy athamas quitted his country and on inquiring of the oracle where he should dwell was told to take up his abode wherever he should be entertained by wild beasts he fell in with a pack of wolves devouring sheep and when they saw him they fled and left him the bleeding remnants of their prey in this way the oracle was fulfilled But because King Athamas had not been sacrificed as a sin offering for the whole country, it was divinely decreed that the eldest Melsion of his family in each generation should be sacrificed without fail, if ever he set foot in the town hall where the offerings were made to Laphistian Zeus by one of the house of Athamas many of the family xerxes was informed had fled to foreign lands to escape this doom but some of them had returned long afterwards and being caught by the sentinels in the act of entering the town hall were wreathed as victims led forth in procession and sacrificed These instances appear to have been notorious, if not frequent, for the writer of a dialogue attributed to Plato, after speaking of the immolation of human victims by the Carthaginians, adds that such practices were not unknown among the Greeks, and he refers with horror to the sacrifices offered on Mount Lysias and by the descendants of Athamas. The suspicion that this barbarous custom by no means fell into disuse even in latter days is strengthened by a case of human sacrifice which occurred in Plutarch's time at Orchomenus, a very ancient city of Boeotia, distant only a few miles across the plain from the historian's birthplace. Here dwelt a family of which the men went by the name of Solius, or Sooty, and the women by the name of Olia, or Destructive. Every year, at the festival of the Agrionia, the priest of Dionysus pursued these women with a drawn sword, and if he overtook one of them, he had the right to slay her. In Plutarch's lifetime, the right was actually exercised by a priest, Zoilus. The family, thus liable to furnish at least one human victim every year, was of royal descent, for they traced their lineage to Minyas, the famous old king of Orchomenus the monarch of fabulous wealth whose stately treasury as it is called still stands in ruins at the point where the long rocky hill of Orchomenus melts into the vast level expanse of the copaic plain Tradition ran that the king's three daughters long despised the other women of the country for yielding to the bacchic frenzy, and sat at home in the king's house, scornfully plying the distaff and the loom, while the rest, wreathed with flowers, their dishevelled locks streaming to the wind, roamed in ecstasy the barren mountains that rise above Orchomenus, making the solitude of the hills to echo to the wild music of cymbals and tambourines. But in time the divine fury infected even the royal damsels in their quiet chamber. They were seized with a fierce longing to partake of human flesh, and cast lots among themselves which should give up her child to furnish a cannibal feast. The lot fell on Lusipa, and she surrendered her son Hippasus, who was torn limb from limb by the three. From these misguided women sprang the Olea and the Solius of whom the men were said to be called because they wore sad-colored raiment in token of their mourning and grief. Now this practice of taking human victims from a family of royal descent at Orchomenus is all the more significant because Athamas himself is said to have reigned in the land of Orchomenus even before the time of Minyas and because over against the city there rises Mount Lephistius, on which, as at Alice in Thessaly, there was a sanctuary of Lophystian Zeus, where, according to her tradition, Athamas proposed to sacrifice his two children, Phrixus and Hela on the whole comparing the traditions about athamas with the custom that obtained with regard to his descendants in historical times we may fairly infer that in thessaly and probably in boeotia there reigned of old a dynasty of which the kings were liable to be sacrificed for the good of the country to the god called Lyphistian zeus but that they contrived to shift the fatal responsibility to their offspring of whom the eldest son was regularly destined to the altar as time went on the cruel custom was so far mitigated that a ram was accepted as a vicarious sacrifice in room of the royal victim provided always that the prince abstained from setting foot in the town hall where the sacrifices were offered to lephistian zeus by one of his kinsmen But if he were rash enough to enter the place of doom, to thrust himself willfully, as it were, on the notice of the god who had good-naturedly winked at the substitution of a ram, the ancient obligation which had been suffered to lie in abeyance recovered all its force, and there was no help for it, but he must die. The tradition which associated the sacrifice of the king or his children with a great dearth points clearly to the belief, so common among primitive folk, that the king is responsible for the weather and the crops, and that he may justly pay with his life for the inclemency of the one or the failure of the other. Athamas and his line, in short, appear to have united divine or magical with royal functions, and this view is strongly supported by the claims to divinity which Solimnaeus, the brother of Athamas, is said to have set up we have seen that this presumptuous mortal professed to be no other than zeus himself and to wield the thunder and lightning of which he made a trumpery imitation by the help of tinkling kettles and blazing torches if we may judge from analogy his mock thunder and lightning were no mere scenic exhibition designed to deceive and impress the beholders they were enchantments practised by the royal magician for the purpose of bringing about the celestial phenomena which they feebly mimicked Among the Semites of Western Asia, the king, in a time of national danger, sometimes gave his own son to die as a sacrifice for the people. Thus Philo of Byblos, in his work on the Jews, says, It was an ancient custom in a crisis of great danger that the ruler of a city or nation should give his beloved son to die for the whole people as a ransom offered to the avenging demons, and the children thus offered were slain with mystic rites. So Cronus, whom the Phoenicians call Israel, being king of the land and having an only begotten son called Jeud, for in the Phoenician tongue Jeud signifies only begotten, dressed him in royal robes and sacrificed him upon an altar in a time of war, when the country was in great danger from the enemy. When the king of Moab was besieged by the Israelites and hard beset, he took his eldest son, who should have reigned in his stead, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall." End of chapter 26. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser, chapter 27, Succession to the Soul To the view that in early times, and among barbarous races, kings have frequently been put to death at the hand of a short reign, it may be objected that such a custom would tend to the extinction of the royal family. The objection may be met by observing, first, that the kingship is often not confined to one family, but may be shared in turn by several. Second, that the office is frequently not hereditary, but is open to men of any family, even to foreigners, who may fulfill the requisite conditions, such as marrying a princess, or vanquishing the king in battle. And third, that even if the custom did tend to the extinction of a dynasty, that is not a consideration which would prevent its observance among people less provident of the future and less heedful of human life than ourselves. Many races, like many individuals, have indulged in practices which must, in the end, destroy them the polynesians seem regularly to have killed two-thirds of their children in some parts of east africa the proportion of infants massacred at birth is said to be the same only children born in certain presentations are allowed to live the jagas a conquering tribe in angola are reported to have put to death all their children without exception in order that the women might not be cumbered with babies on the march they recruited their numbers by adopting boys and girls of thirteen or fourteen years of age whose parents they had killed and eaten among the mabaya indians of south america the women used to murder all their children except the last or the one they believed to be the last if one of them had another child afterwards she killed it we need not wonder that this practice entirely destroyed a branch of the mabaya nation who had been for many years the most formidable enemies of the spaniards Among the Lengua Indians of the Gran Chaco, the missionaries discovered what they described as a carefully planned system of racial suicide by the practice of infanticide by abortion and other methods. Nor is infanticide the only mode in which a savage tribe commits suicide. A lavish use of the poison ordeal may be equally effective some time ago a small tribe named Uit came down from the hill country and settled on the left branch of the Calabar river in west africa when the missionaries first visited the place they found the population considerable distributed into three villages since then the constant use of the poison ordeal has almost extinguished the tribe on one occasion the whole population took poison to prove their innocence about half perished on the spot and the remnant we are told still continuing their superstitious practice must soon become extinct with such examples before us we need not hesitate to believe that many tribes have felt no scruple or delicacy in observing a custom which tends to wipe out a single family to attribute such scruples to them is to commit the common the perpetually repeated mistake of judging the savage by the standard of european civilization if any of my readers set out with the notion that all races of men think and act much in the same way as educated englishmen the evidence of superstitious belief and custom collected in this work should suffice to disabuse him of so erroneous a prepossession The explanation here given of the custom of killing divine persons assumes, or at least is readily combined with, the idea that the soul of the slain divinity is transmitted to his successor. Of this transmission I have no direct proof except in the case of the shuluk, among whom the practice of killing the divine king prevails in a typical form, and with whom it is a fundamental article of faith that the soul of the divine founder of the dynasty is imminent in every one of his slain successors. But if this is the only actual example of such a belief which I can adduce, analogy seems to render it probable that a similar succession to the soul of the slain god has been supposed to take place in other instances, though direct evidence of it is wanting. For it has been already shown that the soul of the incarnate deity is often supposed to transmigrate at death into another incarnation, and if this takes place when the death is a natural one, there seems no reason why it should not take place when the death has been brought about by violence. Certainly the idea that the soul of a dying person may be transmitted to his successor is perfectly familiar to primitive peoples. In Neos, the oldest son usually succeeds his father in the chieftainship. But if from any bodily or mental defect the eldest son is disqualified for ruling, the father determines in his lifetime which of his sons shall succeed him. In order, however, to establish his right of succession, it is necessary that the son upon whom his father's choice falls shall catch in his mouth or, in a bag, the last breath, and with it the soul of the dying chief. For whoever catches this last breath is chief equally with the appointed successor. Hence the other brothers, and sometimes also strangers, crowd round the dying man to catch his soul as it passes. The houses in Neos are raised above the ground on posts, and it has happened that when the dying man lay with his face on the floor, one of the candidates has bored a hole in the floor and sucked in the chief's last breath through a bamboo tube. When the chief has no son, his soul is caught in a bag, which is fastened to an image made to represent the deceased. The soul is then believed to pass into the image. Sometimes it would appear that the spiritual link between a king and the souls of his predecessors is formed by the possession of some part of their persons. In southern syllabus, the regalia often consist of corporeal portions of deceased rajas, which are treasured as sacred relics and confer the right to the throne similarly among the sakalavas of southern madagascar a vertebra of the neck a nail and a lock of hair of a deceased king are placed in a crocodile's tooth and carefully kept along with the similar relics of his predecessors in a house set apart for the purpose the possession of these relics constitutes the right to the throne a legitimate heir who should be deprived of them would lose all his authority over the people and on the contrary a usurper who should make himself master of the relics would be acknowledged king without dispute when the alaka or king of abakuta in west africa dies the principal men decapitate his body and placing the head in a large earthen vessel deliver it to the new sovereign it becomes his fetish and he is bound to pay it honours Sometimes, in order apparently that the new sovereign may inherit more surely the magical and other virtues of the royal line, he is required to eat a piece of his dead predecessor. Thus, at Abakuta, not only was the head of the late king presented to his successor, but the tongue was cut out and given him to eat. Hence, when the natives wish to signify that the sovereign reigns, they say, He has eaten the king. A custom of the same sort is still practiced at Ibadan, a large town in the interior of Lagos, West Africa. When the king dies, his head is cut off and sent to his nominal suzerain, the Alefin of Oyo, the paramount king of Yoruba land. But his heart is eaten by his successor. This ceremony was performed not very many years ago at the accession of a new king of Ibadan. Taking the whole of the preceding evidence into account, we may fairly suppose that when the divine king or priest is put to death, his spirit is believed to pass into his successor. In point of fact, among the Shiluk of the White Nile who regularly kill their divine kings, every king on his accession has to perform a ceremony which appears designed to convey to him the same sacred and worshipful spirit which animated all his predecessors, one after the other, on the throne end of chapter 27.